Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. tuned in to Sci-Fi Fidelity, the podcast that brings you monthly science fiction television discussions and interviews. Remember to follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US, and we are at Sci-Fi Fidelity. This is episode 2B for February of 2016. My name is Mike. And I'm Dave, and in, in this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity, we'll be talking about the X-Files revival on Fox to continue our discussion from episode 2A, and we'll also be discussing The 100 on the CW along with a few other topics of interest. But before we go any further, we want to thank John Haller for the intro and outro music that he composed and performed for this podcast. In fact, John also provided the music for our Liberate, a continuum podcast as well. So we want to thank John and Mike. I happened to run into John on my way home today from work. He was parked waiting to pick up his daughter in the rain. So we had a little discussion, car window to car window. He said he's got (laughs) some more music in the hopper. We need to add some more podcasts so he can keep creating. Yeah. And this is a long overdue thanks. So yeah, I can't wait to talk about these topics. It's been a long time coming. And of course, we did have the X-Files episode 2A, which was well received. And I'm glad that we actually got a lot of our preamble discussion about the X-Files out of the way. So now we can go full bore into the new incarnation of it. And the hundred is going to be our first show that we're, I mean, you talked about the doctor who Christmas special, but this will be one of the few established shows that we'll be talking about. It's not spoiler free. (laughs) The hundred is in its third season and we'll be diving right into the content that's already aired so far this season. So uh, definitely watch out for that. In fact, I'll go ahead and give for those who need to avoid spoilers by skipping certain segments, the time codes for today's topics. The hundred two twenty. The X Files twenty one oh four. Interview segment forty seven oh six. Shipping discussion fifty eight fifty one. Okay, so if you're here, you're caught up on the hundred. If you're not caught up on the hundred. You definitely need to catch this great show. Dave, you're the one that actually persuaded me to come back to The 100 after I only had watched three episodes and thought it was a little bit too CW with the teenage relationships. Right. And ironically, you had a problem with the shipping that was going on. And obviously, that's (laughs) going to be our topic of discussion tonight. But I continue to refer to this show as the best sci-fi show that you're not watching. Oh, my gosh. And I think it's because... It's on the CW. It's on the CW. It took a few episodes to hit its stride. It did hit its stride in season one, but holy cow, season two just took this show to another level. The different tribes, those on the ground, those that came down from the space stations in orbit, and how they have survived in this post-apocalyptic world. So just such a great, unique look at a post-apocalypse that is different from everything out there. And... uh Juan Heda parts one and two 
have taken season three in a really cool direction. We're starting to see the scope broaden a little bit. We actually just had the arc, the grounders, and a little bit of Mount Weather, some folks who would hold up after the uh, nuclear holocaust that are now out of the picture. So what do you think of this new tribe, the uh, Ice Nation, that's coming on the scene? Well, you know, I like it a lot. And and obviously, a a lot of season two was about forging relationships and trying to foster peace, because I think everybody, grounders included, realized that there's no point in just simply killing each other. There's enough here for everybody, but they're pretty set in their ways. And they certainly view, you know, the people that are from the Ark. I mean, what do we refer to them as? I just say sometimes say the Arkers. The Arksters. I like sky people. <laughs> That's just easiest. Well, and they refer to themselves as that, or, or actually the grounders referred to them as that. Sky crew. Yeah, but I really like the direction it's, it's taken. And one of the things that to me is so fascinating about this show is the way the young people have had to adapt to the most dire situations that, that you could possibly impose on anyone. And maybe it's because we work with young people, whatever, but I just find it fascinating. Yeah. It's really great to have them as the main characters and the leaders, although it's kind of taking a little bit of a turn. We'll talk about that in a minute, but first of all, we got some really good news from the ratings as season three started. What can you tell us about that? Well, 1.88 million viewers for the season three premiere, which surpassed all episodes from season two, 1.63 million, a 0.6 rating to share for Winata part two, which is look episode two of virtually any show goes down a little bit. So to go down 200,000, no big deal. So I I think it's opening strong and I got to believe the CW is happy with the show. It's critically acclaimed. And I just think people just need to discover it. The only downside is that these are full 20, 22 episode seasons. So to get caught up, takes a little bit of work yeah it's not like you can just binge a 10 or 13 episode season to catch up you you've got a lot of uh, backstory going on but to catch us up really quick three months have passed since the tragedy at mount weather and our heroes have learned that there's a bounty on clark's head and unbeknownst to clark a team led by bellany and kane as episode one starts have journeyed deep into grounder territory to save her And we also have to pick up on the storyline that's going on with the City of Light. And Murphy has after, I don't even know, was it weeks or months that he was in the bunker and has finally found his way to the mansion and has discovered a very different Jaha on a very different mission. (laughs) Yeah. And and a couple of things, you know, you use the word unbeknownst to Clark. We don't know why the bounty has been put on Clark's head. We start to assume it's, well because she basically is responsible for the deaths of everybody at Mount Weather, but why would that bother the grounders? And I like how they have played with this, because once we hear of the mythical scale of the person that they're looking for called One Heda, and I think the first time we hear it is from the Ice Nation when the team that's going looking around and scouting runs across some Ice Nation scouts, and they're thinking that they're looking for One Heda. Well, who's One Heda? Well, that is the name that's given to the commander of death and whoever is able to kill her for themselves, capture her for themselves, gets her power. 
Right. It has nothing to do with any revenge. It's purely self-serving. And once we hear what the real point is, you almost wonder, well, I'm surprised they don't cut her heart out and eat her heart. Yeah. But it's all predicated on the fact that she killed all of the mountain men. Right. And, and the irony, you know, Bellamy and Kane are going out to rescue her. She doesn't want to be rescued. Yeah, she is out there out of guilt, but everyone has revered her. All the grounders have revered her because of her willingness to basically commit genocide. An entire tribe, anyway, has been wiped off the planet. So it's interesting from the standpoint of the betrayal that Lexa perpetrated at Matt Weather in season two almost makes it so that Lexa, in essence, created Juan Hada by betraying Clark at Mount Weather because she forced Clark's hand. Yeah. And there are probably some people out there that would say, oh, I saw that coming. I'm like, <laughs> no, you didn't. I don't think Lexa saw that coming, but it is an interesting irony. <laughs> yeah. But to me, it's, it's so much Clark because she is that leader. And now one of the things that I wonder about now that the adults have been there for a while, why do the kids turn over their power and their control so readily? Is it maybe just they never wanted it to begin with? I don't know. And are they doing it reluctantly, perhaps? Because, of course, the grown-ups are going to horn in on the territory. And there is a little bit of discussion as to whether or not Abby should even be in charge anymore and should go back to being a doctor at one point. Someone brings that question up. But, yeah, you're right. They actually do seem to be stepping back slightly. And who would have thought Kane would be such a strong and sympathetic leader and talking about how not our, all grounders are the same. I mean, he used to be the bad guy. <laughs> exactly. And, and and I love that about his character because so many times in so many shows, he would remain the bad guy. But I love the fact that his character realizes, you know what? These kids are right. They've been here. They've got the experience. I can learn from them. That's right. And that's not the only thing that some people have been going through. Of course, you mentioned the emotional toll and Clark has had some really strange moments in season two where Lexa expressed some feelings for her. And now here she is as Juan Heda being hunted and enters a tryst with her savior, the, the woman running the trading post. Yeah. Nyla. Interesting that Nyla is played by Jessica Harmon, Richard's sister. I thought that was kind of cool. Richard Harmon plays Murphy, of course. But uh, yeah, so she's going through that. You've got Octavia, who doesn't like Lincoln wearing the guard jacket, and Lincoln is much more sympathetic. It's almost as if they've swapped places. Exactly. And, and you know, it's as if he realizes that he is the key, even though he doesn't want to admit it. He is the key to the piece. Well, it seems like that at first in the epi first episode, but I think that actually changes by the time we get to part two. But of course, you've got the problems that Jasper is experiencing, which I think luckily it's not wallowing too much. I think episode two, when he went to Mount Weather, did kind of take care of a purge for him a little bit because Abby said he needed to face it head on. And he did by looking at that painting. So I'm hoping we're not going to wallow in that too much, but it was very powerful to see how much damage was done to, to Jasper's psyche. Yeah, I think you're a little more optimistic than I am about Jasper. I, I, you know, I, I think it had to be done. I think Abby was right to, to force him to go there, but I think it's going to end up having the opposite effect. I, I think he's going to get worse and they're going to have to do something about it, whether they lock him up, I don't know. <laughs> well, the interesting thing is that 
he was kind of forced along the trip to to Mount Weather to save Nico. When Nico showed up on the scene, don't know exactly what happened to him, but the only way to save him was for a blood transfusion to be done in Mount Weather because of his blood type. And so they took Jasper with them. He experiences his little emotional moment, but also, you know, there's a lot going on here. You've got Nico, who seems to be almost sympathetic to Abby's cause. I mean, he was in season two as well, but he seems to be almost coming around the way Lincoln is. But meanwhile, Abby's starting to think along with the people there that they need to just go ahead and move into Mount Weather. It would be easier at the same time that Pike and his team in episode two are also wanting to take over Mount Weather as the perfect fortified location. You know, they came from Farm Station, which was obviously in a very bad spot up up in the Ice Nation. But Arcadia isn't even as fortified as Mount Weather. Right. And the problem is, is I think they realize that there's a certain symbolism that will accompany. Yeah. They're moving into Mount Weather. And again, is it is it worth it? It's a political problem. Yeah. Yeah. So what is it with Ice Nation? Yeah. (laughs) Who? Who is the Ice Nation? Is there an impending glacier, first of all? I mean, how far north are we talking about here? That's what I was wondering. Are they Canada (laughs) or a little bit closer? Because, of course, this is near Washington, D.C. But who's their queen? Is it a queen like Lexa? And why is this Prince Roan, who for the first part of the first two episodes is seen to just be a bounty hunter who does capture one Hada, but it turns out he's trying to win his way back into the good graces of his mother by completing this capture and yet doesn't deliver her to his mother. He delivers her to Lexa, which was the big twist. What is up with that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know, but I do know one thing that my favorite scene in the first two episodes is the scene when Bellamy, Raven, Monty, Jasper, and Octavia are on patrol. Octavia's on horseback, which uh, is a shame because she doesn't get to join in with the others. But they basically have that moment where they can just be kids. You know, they're in the rover. Jasper brought along his iPod. They pipe it through the speakers. And the next thing you know, they're uh, singing along with Violent Femmes. And what a great song. Yeah, I kind of liked it in that scene. And I also appreciate the fact that, like you said, the kids are allowed to be kids again. And perhaps that's why they've been backing off from the leadership roles, because they haven't had a chance to be like this, to be carefree. Yeah, the beautiful thing about this scene, though, is, again, seeing how carefree they are, even though we know it's going to be interrupted and something bad is going to happen. And of course, it does pretty quickly. Oh, yeah. But. Bellamy pulling that stunt to rescue Clark in disguise as the Ice Nation soldier. I don't know. Yeah, well, because he's got some kind of new girl that we're introduced in episode one, yet he also still seems to be obsessed about getting Clark back. Now, of course, he would even as a friend, but it seems to be a little bit more than that when he makes this stupid move. Yeah, and where'd this new girl come from? Yeah, is it just you and me that have forgotten, or is she new? (laughs) No, I'm pretty sure she's new. Um, significance with the copy of the Iliad yeah. that she gives him. What the heck is up with that? So there's definitely some dynamics going on between Bellamy and Clark, as Bellark shippers can attest to. And there's also some really <sighs> tough tensions between Lexa and Clark for the Clexa shippers. <laughs> we'll talk more about that later. But 
Monty actually gets his own storyline, really kind of cool, with the Farm Nation containing his mother. So he gets to actually be someone other than just Jasper's sidekick. (laughs) His father actually died a hero, too, trying to save some kids who were killed while playing in the snow. They first arrived, and the snow was just so beautiful because, you know, they've been in space. So a really nice story for him, and I'm wondering what it's going to mean for him moving forward. But, of course, the big twist was the bounty hunter who was Prince Roan taking Clark to Lexa in this tall tower, the city of Polis, which was mentioned briefly in season two, but it was really kind of cool to see the tower there. Where are they? I'm not quite sure. Annapolis. (laughs) I don't 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 know. know. Are there any tall buildings like that in Annapolis? That's basically the center of the coalition of all the clans, I guess, amongst the tree crew. So, but how is Lexa going to help with Roan's exile? And, did Lexa actually think that Clark would welcome that rescue? Because clearly that reaction that Clark had was way over the top for us, much less for Lexa. Yeah, because, I mean, look, we understand Clark feels that Lexa sold her out, which she, of course, did. But again, it was sort of out of character because Clark is so wise in these political machinations. And, you know, maybe she was caught off guard. I guess that would be the excuse. Yeah, Or the reasoning, rather. So that's where we are moving forward, and it's a great setup for season three. But what also is going on is this side plot, which is really so different from the rest of the show. The City of Light and Jaha, who apparently has been briefed on how the apocalypse happened in the first place. Some type of artificial intelligence named Allie. It was a solution that she came up with to solve the human problem. There's just too many of you. (laughs) And we've heard that before. Yes, we have. But it's interesting because it's almost like Jaha is a religious convert. And I'm assuming that the chip that he gives to Murphy is some kind of chip that he has inside of him somewhere near his brain that allows him to access the city of light, which is this virtual reality matrix like place. And I think Jaha almost envisions the entire human race being chipped so that they can live in the city of light instead of the desolate place they actually live in. Right. And just as we start to feel as if Jaha's come back to reality, once we realize that's his plan, I guess we realize, no, he's still out there because really, I mean, who's going to want to live that kind of a life? Well, you see who he's converted, damaged people, deformed people. Sure which kind of makes me wonder how Imori escaped because <laughs> she's got that hand issue. But still, uh, Murphy actually does go along for the ride only because Imori shows up. And I think there's a little bit of a spark there, but they're delivering technology to some sort of Island. And it looks like they're in the final stages of that. Cause it looks like they're transporting Allie herself, the CPU for Allie or the, <laughs> the brains of the, computer, whatever, to this island. Now, why they have to be on the island versus the mainland, I'm not sure. But that's the setup that we're given. And obviously, Murphy, I mean, come on, it's Murphy. He would never buy into anything like this. He is in his element when he's being punished the most. (laughs) Well, right. And we can't forget that it was, what, a day or two ago that he had a gun pointed under his chin? Right. He was ready to give up altogether. Right. 
which seemed very un-Murphy-like, to be quite honest. I mean, I know he'd been in there for a very long time and felt as if he was on his last ration of food, but still. So he seems to actually still be himself when he gets out of there. He wants to understand what Imori is doing and kind of, you would think, go along with her idea to scavenge tech for herself rather than for Ali and make a profit off of it. But she pulls a really dumb move by stealing straight under the big giant bodyguard type guy who is guarding Allie's backpack where she's living currently and almost gets them killed. So what Murphy and Amori are going to be doing from here on out, is it going to be separate from the city of light plotline or are they going to somehow have some sort of intrigue related to that? is what I just can't wait to see. Murphy is definitely one of my favorite characters. Well, do we know what Imori knows? I mean, has she been inside the Matrix? I don't think so. It looks like she's just been scavenging tech as a job, as a way to earn a living and stay alive. Certainly better than walking around the wilderness. Right, because that seems like a pairing that will certainly recognize that Jaha is still off the deep end. And certainly I think that's how Murphy's going to perceive it. And I think she's going to go along with him. So is it going to be this big showdown between the two of them against Ali and Jaha? I think so. Right. And obviously Ali is programmed to protect herself, self-preservation. So we'll see. And of course, those of you who are listening to this podcast have probably already seen season or episode three. Dave and I have not seen that yet. It's it's airing as we're recording. But fortunately, we were able to see episodes one through three of The X-Files, and that's what we're going to be talking about next. All right. So season 10, episodes one, two, and three, My Struggle and Founder's Mutation, which obviously aired back-to-back on Sunday and Monday night, Sunday after the NFC Championship game. Uh, we'll get to episode three in a few minutes. The ratings, Mike, were just staggering. I, I don't see how Fox could have hoped for any more. Oh my gosh, it's record-breaking. I saw an article today that said that this exceeded all expectations. I mean, wasn't it like around 20 million? Yeah. I mean, the top 25 broadcast shows in Live Plus 3 for the adults 18 to 49 for January 18th to 24. Other than the NFC title game, the X-Files dominated the competition, finishing second with a 7.8 rating. Next highest was the juggernaut that is NCIS, 3.1. And not even close. Not even close. As you said, 20.3 million viewers. The Live Plus same day was 16.2 million. And that's, okay, we have to put a little bit of the NFC lead-in behind that, but that doesn't explain Episode two, which did quite well as well. Yeah, because, you know, they have these things called remotes that (laughs) if you don't like what's on, you change it. (laughs) And then episode two, again, the the normal drop off, 9.69 million, a 3.2 share. Again, it's just staggering. Yeah, that is already even just the nine million. Never mind the 20 million. Right. Nine point six nine million. And that's live plus same day, I assume. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, let's talk about the show. Number one, I love the fact that they use the original opening credits, even down to the point that Scully and Mulder's IDs were the same, showing them, you know, her in her 20s, him in his early 30s. I love it because on the one hand, it makes that transition so much easier. Yeah. And I would have been pleased with the reinvented opening credits, but there was some pull for the nostalgia 
because this is a huge nostalgia project that just made it really kind of cool to see that they didn't mess with it. Yeah. And I like the fact that they didn't spend an inordinate amount of time explaining why Scully and Mulder aren't together as a couple. I mean, you know, I've heard some criticisms about that opening uh, voiceover that Mulder does at the beginning explaining, you know, what the X-Files are, where he's been and all that. But you have to. Everybody's not an X-Files fan. So you're going to have a a number of new viewers. You had to do it. I thought they did it well. Oh, yeah. And it pulls people in. My stepdaughter, who's watched quite a few X-Files episodes when we tried to watch beginning from season one, but she didn't get that far. And she's into it. And she doesn't need to know the full scope of it. And I think this intro is for those types of people. Yeah. And once we first see Mulder and Scully, we we really feel sorry for them beyond shipping because clearly their experiences on the X-Files have led them to the point in their lives where they're really just, I don't want to say struggling to hang on, but that's probably accurate as far as Mulder goes. Oh, definitely. I mean, it makes sense that Scully would have a medical career and she seems to be doing well for herself. But what the heck is Fox Mulder going to do? And they really don't explain it. They don't say he went and got a job as a used car salesman or something. So he's obviously been keeping himself gainfully employed, but probably always had his mind on the X-Files. Right. Now, we talked last time about the title, My Struggle, and we thought, well, I wonder if it has anything to do with Mein Kampf. And well, uh, no. (laughs) Uh, but it does refer to the struggle that that both Mulder and Scully have had since the X-Files was closed. I'm pretty sure this My Struggle is Mulder's and the season finale, which is also called My Struggle, is going to be Scully's. Right. And certainly we assume it will have something to do with their son, William, who at this point would be 15 years old. Now, these are the mythology episodes, the episode one, a little bit of episode two, of course, and then episode six, I assume, will take care of a good portion of the myth myth arc as well. Right. Now, in this one, the story that the conspiracy is not an alien cover-up, but a cover-up of this insidious plot to take over the United States and ultimately the world, it does seem to be more in line with contemporary issues facing the country. And obviously, that was a challenge for Chris Carter and the writers to basically bring the X-Files up to date because technology-wise, things change day-to-day. Surveillance-wise, yeah. Well, with everything, and and let alone what it was in in 2002 when the series ended. And I loved it because I think uh, in our episode 2A, I was talking about Jose Chung's From Outer Space, and in that, there was a big question as to whether or not the abductions were being done by aliens or by the military with the alien memory implants just covering up their tracks. (laughs) And that's what we have here. Exactly. Now, I'm not really clear about Mulder stating that Roswell was a smokescreen because he acknowledges we've been visited by aliens drawn to our atomic and nuclear explosions, which makes sense. And and that's an idea that I think we've seen in other sci-fi, that the nuclear explosions are what attracted them in the first place and Mm -hmm. whether it was altruistic on the aliens and that they just wanted to protect us from ourselves or whether they wanted to protect themselves from us it's not clear but either way there was an alien crash at roswell so what did he mean it was a smokescreen well i think the grays were pretty much taken out of the equation and then they were exploited by the government as the abduction 
candidates, supposedly. But you're right. The smokescreen idea doesn't make any sense when you factor in the black oil and all the other aliens that show up in this show besides the greys. But apparently Roswell itself was just to exploit the technology that the aliens brought rather than the aliens themselves. That's the way I read it. Okay. Because obviously it happened. At least one alien did survive the crash only to be killed by that trigger happy, short sighted military. I mean, (laughs) yeah, Um, we are introduced to an ARV alien replica vehicle that runs on electromagnetic clean energy that's being withheld by the government. So oil can make its profits. And doesn't that just appeal to the conspiracy theorist everywhere? (laughs) Yes. And the beauty of that plot device is that, well, okay, maybe we don't have alien technology that we're sitting on, or maybe we do, uh, (laughs) but that there are certainly better ways to get our energy than through petroleum and all of that. And that the reason we're still where we are is because of the government conspiracy. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So we're introduced to this girl, Sveta, who apparently claims to have alien DNA. And oh, my gosh, when she lifts up her shirt, she's got the scoop marks. Oh, Oh. (laughs) great actress, by the way, from the Americans really enjoy her on that show. And she was great here as well. Yeah, I I don't watch the Americans, but yeah, I, I thought she was wonderful. But, you know, as we move through the episode, we find out that she does have alien DNA, uh, Scully, it would seem, has alien DNA. Does that technically make them hybrids? I think it must. And and this is something that they exploit in all three of the episodes that have aired so far. Mulder and Scully are perceived to be like experts. And Scully has a well experience, including her own abduction, to draw from. Yeah. Now, we mentioned the the crash at Roswell, and we see that, and we see this young military officer who's brought in to investigate or to help with the investigation and uh, you know we see him horrified when they shoot the surviving alien then he carries the dead body off and then later we see Mulder meeting with this informant in the middle of the night and it's the young doctor now in his I guess 80s probably Mm -hmm. and I'm wondering because clearly they've had meetings before they've communicated before and I guess their deal is he will confirm or deny whatever Mulder thinks he's found out. Mm-hmm. Why can't he just tell him the truth? I don't know. It's a great plot device because it basically accelerates through the central problem of the first nine episodes of the X-Files and just sort of encapsulates it in one nice, neat little package. Yeah, but it's like it's like he's forcing Mulder to learn these truths on his own as if, well, they won't mean as much if you don't learn them. No, come on. Deep throat anyone? <laughs> well, exactly. Exactly. Now, mention that ARV, and I'm wondering where those scientists obtained what was needed to build that ship. Yeah, all from Roswell, I assume. Right, but how did they get it out of... Wright Patterson or wherever they, you know, sent that particular crashed ship. It seems like they can dismantle wherever the hidden base is at any time and move it somewhere else. They probably have to keep it moving. But it is interesting that they just kind of lay it out on the table so quickly to Mulder and he is sucked right back in. You see the smile on his face when he sees the ARV. I mean, he is in his element and he he feels like all this has been withheld from him. And this Ted O'Malley a conservative talk show host and conspiracy theorist himself 
is the one that's finally bringing this to light because I guess Ted O'Malley is not threatening at first because he's such a crackpot and it's just all wrapped up in other things that people think aren't necessarily credible conspiracy wise. So he's been able to dig farther into it perhaps because of his talk show angle that he has. Yeah. And and, you know, Tad O'Malley's character seems to be somewhat of a polarizing figure on the articles I've read on the internet with the X-Files fan base. And I really liked it. I thought his character was great. Yeah. It had something for everyone, whether you're conservative or liberal, he had the things that perhaps Mulder didn't agree with, but also the conspiracy theories that he was right there with him. Right. All right. Well, obviously the big, Question, and I mean big. How the hell did Cigarette Smoking Man survive that missile blast in the cave at the end of season nine? Not to mention he got a haircut and is wearing normal clothes, still smoking through the throat. But did he have some kind of plastic mask or something covering half his face? Uh, it looked like it, but still. I, I mean, we saw that, that missile. All right, he's hiding out in this cave because there's a new syndicate that wants to get rid of him Mm -hmm. and obviously a power play, but what the heck he's invincible. (laughs) I get, okay. I guess Uh, along with another character, apparently in the uh, show. I love that. I'm immortal. Don't you remember? Anyway, (laughs) exactly. William B Davis though. We love him from continuum. Oh yeah. As elder Alec. All right. Well, episode two founders mutation were introduced to this company called Nugenics run by the recluse known as the founder. And, and I forget one of the somebody even mentions about how pretentious that sounds. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess they had to use the term founders mutation, which is a real term from Darwin evolution. So they wanted to call him the founder to fit with the founders mutation idea. <laughs> Right, that uh, a founder mutation is a mutation that appears in the DNA of one or more individuals who essentially found a new population. A whole new species almost. Exactly. And founder mutations initiate with changes that occur in the DNA and then eventually get passed down to other generations. What's cool about this is that it seems to be talking about evolution in a forced way, a forced evolution. Is it eugenics? Is it just the alien hybrid idea? Because, of course, there were plenty of experiments in the original X-Files episodes that talked about alien-human hybrids. But this seems to be having a completely different effect that is more along the line of eugenics, giving them psychic powers uh, like the X-Men, the mutant gene, and things like that. So different than what we've seen in the past with the hybrid idea. Right. And that's exactly what's going on here is, as you mentioned, eugenics. But we're back to. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. 
Mulder and Scully trying to solve a case. Yes. Right. So they've got this scientist that's working on this project that hears this high pitched sound that is just driving him crazy and eventually locks himself inside one of the most secure rooms in the building. And the next thing you know, we, he takes a letter opener and puts it in his ear all the oh, way to his brain. Terrible. Um, but before that, I would be remiss if we didn't mention Omari Newton. Oh, yeah. One of the scientists in the firm. Because we talked about Cigarette Smoking Man being Elder Alec in Continuum. Now we've got Omari Newton playing a scientist who was Lucas in Continuum and Ryan Robbins as one of the uh, exactly <laughs> spooks. So... They immediately encounter the DOD Stonewall, as you say, Ryan Robbins. I'm not sure. Do we ever find out his character's name? Nope. He's like cigarette smoking man. No name required. (laughs) We'll call him bearded man. (laughs) Not well manicured man. But it was nice to see Skinner again because Skinner with his beard showing up and right back in his old ways of protecting Mulder and Scully from themselves, but also wanting to support them in any way he can. But he has to bow to whatever pressures are being put on him, including that those from the DOD. Although I thought it was interesting as soon as the DOD guy left, he's like, okay, here's what we're going to (laughs) do. Right. And again, that's a character, you know, you mentioned Kane in the hundred. When we first meet Skinner, I forget which season, you know, he's certainly doing all he can to bust Scully and Mulder, but, you know, he gradually realizes that what they're doing is right. And like you said right here, it was like, you know, it's going to take the paperwork a pretty long time to to go through. (laughs) And we know exactly what it means. But I also like the fact that, you know, Mulder meets a contact and it's this similar looking bar that appeared in the original show on a number of occasions down in, I believe it would always be in Georgetown. Cool. Um, And he's meeting this guy, Gupta, who, when Mulder tells him, can we go somewhere more private to talk, he misinterprets Mulder's intention. (laughs) Let's just say that. Well, apparently the guy who stuck the letter opener in his ear was one of his regular customers. But yeah, he actually was able to at least shed some light on Sanjay's life. But then he does, as he's pointing to Mulder's heart, the truth is in here, he tells him. (laughs) Yeah, they have a lot of tongue-in-cheek lines and moments in the first three episodes, and I love it. I hope we have more of those. Yeah, they have one or two in episode three. (laughs) Just a few. (laughs) Yeah. All right, so we see Sanjay write something on his hand. He's the guy that that kills himself. But now Scully discovers, when she's doing the autopsy, that he wrote Founder's Mutation in the palm of his hand. And, you know, we already discussed what that actually means. So now it's at least pointing Scully in the direction that she understands. All right, now I know what we're talking about here. Yeah, her medical practice, in fact, is working with some kids who are missing their ears, a genetic defect that they're experiencing. And apparently, a lot of what Nugenics is dealing with also deals with youngsters who have one type of mutation or another. A lot of them are very rare genetic disorders. Right. Now, you know what often happens, uh, certainly as a plot device, while Mulder and Scully are going through his apartment, Mulder opens a drawer and it seems simultaneously that same high pitched sound begins affecting him, but not Scully. Yeah, it's very strange because you think, is this some sort of infection that is spreading? How is this coming to be? 
And so it's a little bit of a relief to find out that it's originating from a person because then you know that Mulder is not going to just keep experiencing this over and over and then it's going to spread to Scully and so on. Yeah. But Mulder suspects the DOD is conducting genetic experiments on children. Ryan Robbins is the government official overseeing the project, apparently. Exactly. And it looks like the government is funding Nugenics, or maybe they're a contractor. And first of all, if your company is named Nugenics, (laughs) I think that should raise a few red flags with the human rights folks. (laughs) Kind of like evil corp. (laughs) Exactly. Now, Scully is at her hospital, but we learn that women with problem pregnancies have agreed to give up their babies. But there's a young girl that asks Scully to help her get out, changed her mind. We don't know what's going on here, but significant that Planet of the Apes is on the television in the day room. Oh, yeah. In fact, I think they show it again later. It's definitely a nice little symbolic way that these uh, kids are being treated. Yeah. All right. So now that Scully has been immersed in this genetic experimentation or so it would seem, I I think it certainly seems to be pointing in that direction. She questions whether her genetics were manipulated and then brings up their son, William, and the question about whether or not they believe he was an experiment. Or I certainly think it would be a question of whether or not he would be experimented on if his presence were known. But yeah, he himself is perhaps the result of an experiment as well. Right. And and certainly that's a question that that has to be asked whether or not we're going to see William, who would now be 15 years old. And I want to say yes, but I'm afraid it's going to be no. And I'm glad they stuck this here. This was supposed to be episode five. They made it episode two. Great decision. Because of the mythology part and the Skinner being introduced and all that, but also because they talk about William. And I think that conversation needed to happen close to the beginning. Yeah. And it's funny when we were still a few weeks away from this event series. Well, there are two mythology episodes and four standalones. And now having seen Founders Mutation, it's like, well, how can this not be part of the mythology arc? Exactly. Of course it is. It makes sense. Now, arguably the most poignant scene in quite a long time in the X-Files, even going back to the the original, Mulder and Scully addressing the fact that they have a son together after they encounter the boy with the powers. And we then see each of their perceptions of what their lives would be like had they kept their son. And, you know, we see Scully taking him to school, meeting him at the end of the day, and and then that foreboding feeling she has, but she finds that he's only broken his arm And then later in the episode, when we see Mulder imagining it, you know, they're firing off rockets and watching (laughs) 2001 A Space Odyssey. And the kid, I just love it. It's like, well, what's a monolith? (laughs) Yeah. Well, you'll have your own interpretation of it. It's just perfect. I mean, it's just perfect. And yeah, they each perceive what they would normally want. I mean, it makes sense that Scully has her son a broken arm so that she can fix it as a medical doctor. And Mulder sees his son being abducted the same way that Samantha was. And those are their fears. And what would they do if they had to protect their son? I mean, just a perfectly conceived what if scenario. Right now, unlike episode three, which we'll get to in a second episode one and two are pretty darn serious. Goldman, who we find out is the founder Mm -hmm. is taking them on a tour of his facility. And after a few pieces of conversation or exchange, Dr. Scully, I was told you were the rational one. (laughs) Exactly. Because she just cuts to the chase. 
and the question of whether or not he's using alien DNA in his experiments. Exactly. That was a really cool moment where she didn't mince words at all. Now, they also find the girl that wanted them to help her get out earlier. She's now dead. Her baby has been surgically removed. Who took the baby? Goldman, Ryan Robbins and his guys. Oh, well, I think the end result is the same either way. Yeah. He's in Goldman's experiments. Right. But I think the key part that comes out of this is more about what Mulder gets from it because he actually walks off with a vial of Kyle's blood, the son Kyle. And what is he going to do with that? (laughs) What is that going to mean for the succeeding episodes? All right. Well, well, let's lighten the mood a little bit. Get to episode three. Mulder and Scully meet the were monster. A Darren Morgan script, and it's unmistakable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now we're not going to go into this one in as much depth, but it's obviously a funny episode. That when I first watched it, I thought, you know, on the one hand, I'm a little disappointed. You know, it's fine to have one of these kinds of episodes, the Jose Chung's. <laughs> when you have 24 episode season and there's only six, <laughs> right? When it's one of six, I'm not sure, but having seen it, having laughed through it, having recognized the serious point that they were trying to make, I really like this one a lot. I just loved that. It was kind of poking fun at Mulder's middle agedness and inability to operate a smartphone, but also things that they couldn't do back when the X-Files first aired, like taking pictures of Sasquatch and whatever other beasts they might come across because people didn't have phones to just take a picture at a moment's notice. Right, but you mentioned Mulder's middle age. I mean, at the heart of it, you've got this existential exploration of Mulder as he's trying to re-examine his life and wonder whether anything he's done has any real meaning. And that's a perfectly understandable reaction to have at his age well especially since the episode opens with him going through some of the x-files and seeing that they were just caused by pranksters and the like specifically with regard to the fantastical monsters so what do we call this monster the were lizard the were lizard <laughs> there you go okay obvious nod to darren mcgavin's cold check the hat the <laughs> coat the tie the attitude the irreverence And, of course, Chris Carter's acknowledged Kolchak as one of his primary influences for the X-Files. So I thought that was pretty cool. And, obviously, the twist that it's not a man turning into a monster. It's a monster turning into a man. Yeah, perfect. They had, like, the tribute to Kim Manners on the gravestone. They had the ringtone being the X-Files theme when Scully calls him from the, the animal shelter. Right. And you mentioned the phone references because, look, obviously, when the original X-Files was aired in season one, I mean, my goodness, their cell phones were huge. They were like bricks. (laughs) Yeah. But they always had them with them. The the only thing I think that was missing tonight was making jokes about their flashlights. Oh, yeah, that would have been cool. But like we mentioned, we had a little bit of a reference to it earlier. The fact that Scully referenced her immortality, which is a big theory out there that you can definitely read plenty of articles about based on several episodes that have hinted at her invulnerability. Scully reminds us that she's immortal. Well, and I love the way they do it because Mulder is chastising her for going alone without backup. It's like Mulder, 
Don't you know I'm immortal? <laughs> and then, of course, the scene at the phone shop where she goes in and the next thing you know, she's coming on to the guy and, and opening her blouse and all this. And next thing you know, they're having sex and Mulder's like, wait a minute, that did not happen. <laughs> More shades of Jose Chung whenever embellishments are occurring. <laughs> exactly. But uh, yeah, just a really fun episode. And, and obviously, we know episode six is going to uh, likely, as you said, discuss and examine Scully's struggle. Four and five are going to be standalones, but I, I'm guessing not humorous. So, But if this is any indication of where we're headed, I think they have knocked it out of the park. <laughs> yeah, they have. And obviously the question now is, will the powers that be try to sign everybody up for six more next year? I would be quite okay with that. Yes, I will. <laughs> well, another show that actually has a quite a bit of levity, very lighthearted, is Supergirl, which Dave, you and I have both watched a little bit of. We've actually dipped our toes in a lot of the different superhero shows, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Arrow, The Flash. Uh, we, we'll probably be talking about Legends of Tomorrow next month. But with the established way of doing comic book shows, this new kid on the block fits right in. And of course, there have been other incarnations of this superhero on screen before. In fact, the movie version of Supergirl, played by Helen Slater, has already appeared on Supergirl as Kara Danvers' adoptive mother. Well, Dave, another nod and wink to an earlier Supergirl is about to show up on the CBS show. This time, it's the Kara portrayed in the 10-season hit Smallville. Of course, I'm referring to Laura Vandervoort, who expertly played the Supergirl role in that show. And now she's set to portray a recurring villain. Yes, I said recurring. That was one of our scoops that we got in this interview. On the new Supergirl, she's going to be playing an android known as Indigo this month. In fact, just in the coming weeks, very shortly. And we got a chance to talk to Laura Vandervoort about this upcoming role. So let's take a listen to that interview. We're so happy to be talking to Lara Vandevoort today. Bitten, Smallville, now Supergirl. Can't wait to see the guest appearance that we're about to see. Uh, Lara, can you start us off by telling us, is this a recurring role or a one-time guest spot? Because I'm hearing rumors we'll see more of this character. On Supergirl? Yeah. I believe I'm allowed to say I'm recurring. I play Indigo. He's a, a villain. I really can't say a lot more, but... Uh, it's been great. We've already shot an episode and uh, having a lot of fun playing a character as slimy and methodic and strange as Indigo. Well, I guess one of the obvious questions, you know, what's it like to have been Supergirl on Smallville, now return to a show that has another incarnation of that character, you playing a different role, uh, and do you see any differences between the two cars? I, I love it. You know, I, I played Supergirl for four years on Smallville, and their take on Supergirl was entirely different from Supergirl's take on Kara. And I think it's for the best. I think they're doing a great job. You know, on Smallville, it was pre-Supergirl. It was Kara Kent sort of finding her way in the world and being a little on the bitchy side, whereas this version of Kara is almost like a Clark Kent, I think. She's a little geeky and uh, conservative, but she's learning as she goes and developing her abilities. It's been great to be on the show, and, you know, I look entirely different from when I did play Supergirl, because Indigo is different looking. <laughs> I don't want to give anything away, <laughs> but it's 
wonderful working with Melissa because she's a fantastic actress and we've been getting along really well. And to play someone who is opposing Supergirl when I've previously played her is kind of epic and, and a lot of fun for me in a way, sort of that wink at the audience. It's been great. It's interesting that you mentioned the appearance factor because I was about to ask that, so maybe I'll rephrase it because comics readers will kind of know maybe <laughs> what to expect from your appearance. I know like Kilgrave and Jessica Jones wasn't purple. They just had him wearing purple. So perhaps the turquoise skin <laughs> and other things will have something different that you can't mention right now. But oh, I can't. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about uh, the connection to Brainiac that your character has? Because, of course, Brainiac was a big part of Smallville for your character, and now you're on the other team. Yeah, I actually, uh, in Smallville, had an episode where I was Brainiac, which was a lot of fun. But again, I don't think I can say anything about Indigo. Her motive, if she's involved with Brainiac, uh, I really can't say. (laughs) Well, let's let's say what's already out there in the in the press release and stuff like that, which is that Indigo is a supercomputer, part of a supercomputer on Krypton that perhaps turns against the people of Krypton and ends up in Fort Ross. That we know just from the, the press material. So, Well, great. And that's safe to say. That's safe to say, but no more than that, huh? You're not going to be able to say whether or not you're kind of like Skynet in the Terminator, <laughs> where you turn against the people you're supposed to protect? Um... I would love to tell you everything I have <laughs> I can and cannot say, so it's better for me to just keep my mouth shut. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I mean, it does appear that Indigo may be this season's big bad. So, you know, what do you find challenging about playing evil characters? Um, it's actually more fun for me to play to play evil. We got a, a bit of that with Elena in the past three seasons. She's had moments of being red and she's just bloodthirsty and out for revenge especially this this third season you'll see that so I've, I've had my opportunities of playing bad and other shows and things like that but this one in particular is a different breed of bad and it's been a lot of fun I'm sort of stepping outside of my comfort zone in terms of how I've played characters before and her body language is sort of crucial and I've never had that before where the body language is a part or a large part of the character, as much as it is with Indigo. Well, you, you mentioned Bitten, which is, of course, airing its third and final season this spring. Are you still filming on that show? And can you tease a little bit about your character, Elena Michaels, and the future of the pack? Uh, we've wrapped. It will be airing February 12th on Space and 15th on Sci-Fi. And it's our best season yet. I think all across the board, we all feel that way. We, we gave it our all this season there's not much that I want to give away, but if people could see the finale of season two, Elena had a premonition of burning Stonehaven to the ground, Ooh. where she was engulfed in flames and drenched Carrie style in blood. And this season, she's dealing with what that premonition means. Does it mean that no matter what she does, this premonition will come true? She's sort of terrified of herself and what lays before her, what she can and can't control. So that's a big factor this season, as well as some sort of life-altering news comes her way. And that was something I, as an actor playing Alina, had no idea about our writers who are brilliant just throw these curveballs at us that 
changes the course of how we, we play our characters. And this season especially, uh, everything changes for her. I just want to point out, too, this is an interesting coincidence. The ex-fiancé that turned Elena into a werewolf is named Clayton Danvers. Coincidence? Danvers? Supergirl? <laughs> yeah, I know. People have, have definitely seen that coincidence before. Um, yeah, there, there's always a weird sort of full <laughs> circle back to Supergirl, isn't there? Well, you know, you've mentioned in interviews a desire to play strong physical and emotional female characters, and you have a black belt in karate. It looks like a lot of sports experience when you were younger. Do you enjoy performing action sequences? And other than not getting hurt, what's the greatest challenge doing them? Yeah, I, you know, I, I was a tomboy growing up, um, full-fledged, and uh, didn't we tried gymnastics and all of that, and, and I enjoyed it, but I think I had a little more aggression as a child than, than I probably should have. So my parents put me into karate probably when I was about seven. And I was about 19 when I got my second degree black belt, and at the time was filming a show in Toronto, so couldn't continue training, but it sort of parlayed into future roles, which is why I love sci-fi. It's, it's so physical as well, where I've, I've gotten an opportunity to do a lot of my own stunts more so than ever on Bitten. We have a wonderful stunt coordinator, John Stead, who allows us to do as much as we are willing and safely can do. And, and a lot of the guys on the show do all of their stunts. So we love it. it. It mixes up the day. You know, you have crazy emotional dialogue scenes, and then you get to do this fun fight scene, get your blood pumping. I did hurt myself for the first time this season, though. I was a little too excited to start the season off in our first fight scene, I smashed my head into a table. Oh, so gosh. I, I, yeah, I, I really get into it. Well, now you've made the fan circuit in conventions. I've seen you at Dragon Con in Atlanta, actually, and genre fans now have another thing to add with the Supergirl appearance to genre shows that they love having seen you in. What's some of your fan interaction moments that you can share with us, some favorite times or maybe even something that fans might not know about you? that people who maybe go to those conventions would find out that they might not otherwise? Gosh, I've had a lot of great interactions with sci-fi fans over the years. I've had an opportunity to go to some really great conventions, San Diego Comic-Con in New York and even the smaller ones, and they're all always a great experience, mostly because I love to meet true fans of shows in that genre, and I love to hear from them what about those characters and shows they love and what they hate and what they want to see from me. I mean, it's it's actually like a, a study session for me to <laughs> sort of pick people's brains on, on what aspects they love. And the Smallville fans are always, always there and they're always going to be strong and proud. But it's been great to see, you know, audience fans grow with me into other shows, new fans for the Bitten books, Smallville fans now love Bitten. So it's it's nice. It's, it's it's one of the best genres to be a part of because the fans are so fanatic about it. And you often see the same faces and get to know their names. And it's just a great opportunity to meet people. I always love it. So it's great. So when can we see Indigo? What's the date that we're looking forward to here in February? Uh, I don't know the exact air date. Um, she's a reoccurring character. So I think I had heard 
end of February, maybe February 29th for my first episode, but don't quote me on that. I don't know, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that airing while season three is airing as well as Bitten. Well, cool. Well, uh, Laura Vandevort, thank you very much for joining us today. We were uh, very appreciative of your time and can't wait to see you on Supergirl. Thank you, and I hope you guys enjoy season three as well as Bitten. Uh, we're yes. really, really proud of it, so I'll be live tweeting uh, the sci-fi airing. Cool. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks very much. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Bye. And as Ms. Vandervoort mentioned in that interview, you can also catch her in the great series on sci-fi, her regular role on Bitten, which will air its third and final season here in the States. And it's also on space in Canada as well. All right. Well, why don't we get to this week's discussion topic and that is shipping. And Mike, I'm still continually amazed at how many people don't know what that actually is. I am too. We constantly get people writing into our other podcasts, either on our Facebook groups or on Twitter or via email that say, by the way, I heard you guys mention shipping. What is that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what do you mean ship the characters? Well, look, I, I think most of you know the desire by members of a fandom for two characters to enter into a romantic relationship. That's called shipping. Right. Now, what I didn't realize was that the term originated in the X-Files Usenet groups in the mid-90s, and you're showing your age if you don't know what a Usenet group is. (laughs) Well, obviously, it's a derivation of the term relationship. But what's interesting is that a lot of the conventions that sprung up around shipping weren't around then basically i think there was a term called intellishippers for those people who wanted Mulder and scully to get together but there was no shipping name for them where you cram their names together but that was an exciting find we we had already decided to talk about shipping based on the hundred before we even realized that x-files was part of its origin right now fortunately or unfortunately Shipping borders on obsession with many fandoms, and should you stray from whatever is considered the favored pairing, in the words of J.K. Rowling, what you get is scary and vehement cyber gang warfare. (laughs) Serious shippers seem to have an over-the-top devotion to their couple, and it can get really intense because what the shipping fandom comes up with is what's referred to as the OTP, the one true pairing Of course, the problem is, well, who's to decide what that OTP is? Because there's this extreme emotional investment in a couple. I don't get it. I mean, I didn't know I was shipping Scully and Mulder back then, but I wasn't so emotionally invested that when they didn't get together until, you know, whenever season eight or season nine... (laughs) I had a problem with it that I lost sleep over it, that I was posting, I don't know. Well, I don't understand why you would center your enjoyment of the show around it. And everything is meaningless unless the OTP is is addressed. Right. That's what the problem is. Right. And, And obviously, in some shows, it can be a point of contention in the fandoms. I mean, Lost Girl, for instance, is one, whether it's Docubus with Bo and Lauren or Bo and Dyson, which is what the first pairing in the show was, or even Bo and Tamsin. But the other interesting thing is, as you alluded to a minute ago, the naming conventions using clipped compounds, as in Brangelina, 
Oh, yeah. Um, Good old Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt. Exactly. But even you said Docubus. It doesn't even have to be their names. Docubus is Doctor and Succubus. So it can be their uh, superhero powers. It could be their professions. It could be their names. Yeah. And oh, my goodness. I found this one fan website that deals with basically it looked like Arrow, The Flash, and Legends. And they must have had a list of 100 different possible pairings, in, oh, yeah. including some completely inappropriate ones with, <laughs> you know, Oliver and his mother, uh, <laughs> Oliver and his sister. Although I got to say, Arrow, Speedy could be Sparrow. Yeah, sometimes it's just if you can come up with a really catchy <laughs> pairing name. Yeah. But the one thing that I wasn't aware of that, that you were, though, was the term Slash. Yeah, and it also almost has become obsolete. Now, slash fiction is mostly with fan fiction rather than pairing names on TV. But it seems like they should just drop the slash because now any pairing is acceptable. Boy, boy, girl, girl, boy, girl, a trio. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it's all up for grabs. Even yeah, brother, sister, maybe not. But what I, again, what I didn't realize is that term slash for the non-traditional generally homosexual pairing as opposed to girl girl started with star trek and kirk and spock yeah though there doesn't seem to have been any progress made in that pairing uh it doesn't have to be see the thing is there's canon and then there's non-canon okay so canon is wishing for a true pairing to show up on the show but non-canon is what you can explore in fan fiction there's no hope of seeing Kirk and Spock together, but you still like to fantasize about it. But as TV viewers, we're mainly looking at hetero and slash fiction, or they, I guess they call it femme slash a lot of times if it's two girls. So what are some of the pairings that we've seen out there, Dave? Some of the fun ones. All right. Well, certainly <laughs> when we were doing Continuum, Kira and Carlos, which we pretty quickly realized was not going to happen. And I don't think there were many people that really shipped them. I know there was one podcast co-host that shipped kira and kellogg kirlog <laughs> kira and brad although they kind of were a couple there but i think one of the best ones is with agents of shield and fitz and simmons fitz simmons well there's a quite a few people that are devoted to their otp and it's not just Docubus, it's not just one or the other there's like three different really strong ones yeah fitz simmons is one sure sky and ward which <laughs> skyward yeah they have begun to lose hope but they're another one of those that is really rabid and are almost angry when they see that this is not coming to be right now we would get a lot of email if we didn't mention the next one although it wouldn't be angry if we didn't mention <laughs> sky and simmons well the interesting about thing about skimmons is that it transcends their characters to the point where people are shipping the actors Elizabeth Henstridge and Chloe Bennett as Benstridge. Wow. <laughs> That's what's so funny to me is that it even goes beyond the character. All right. Now, obviously in Arrow, we had Olicity. Yep. That's one of the more common ones. Obviously in Flash, Barry and Iris, Barry and Patty, although, spoiler, oh. looks like Patty's leaving town. Well, both of them actually work with their last name. They actually have West Allen for the Barry Iris pairing and Spallon for the Barry Patty pairing. <laughs> right. Now, a non-genre show that obviously you and I have watched many, many episodes of, NCIS and Dinozo and Ziva, which 
you know, is certainly one of the biggest shipping couples, I think, in... in uh, oh, yeah. Very devoted Tiva following. Yes. <laughs> um, now, Dark Angel, which Wayne and I have been uh, examining on Sci-Fi TV Rewatch, Max and Logan, and then Alec and Max. Well, that's one, you know, I found out Max and Alec, their ship name is just M-A. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you don't even have to use parts of their name to get the pairing name. But one of the ones that came up on this show and the reason we brought this into the topic for discussion is because the hundred is starting to be a little bit more polarized. I think people are still keeping it fairly lighthearted in their competition between Clark being paired with Lexa, which is called Clexa or Clark being paired with Bellamy, which is called Bellark. And I think they had a couple of nods to both of those pairings in the first two episodes that we saw. But I don't think either of those are necessarily going to come to fruition. No, I don't. Interestingly either. enough. <laughs> yeah. And for a lot of different reasons. But so there's a lot of dangers with shipping. It can become a little bit too rabid in the fan base if it doesn't come to fruition. It's a fun way to have a diversion for the show. I'm a huge Fit Simmons shipper myself. I don't necessarily have any other strong ones besides that in a lot of the shows that I watch. But it definitely adds to the enjoyment of the show. Right. And I think at the end of the day, for me, if the shipping is getting in the way of the show, then we've got a problem. And the problem, you know, rests with the writers letting things get out of control. Yeah. And definitely don't pander to it. And I love Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. for not pandering to Skyward. Sorry. (laughs) And I don't think they've pandered to Fitzsimmons either. No, no. Thankfully, that would ruin it. Yep. So... Can't wait to uh, see how all those things shake out in X-Files and The 100, which have just been getting started. And we're happy to have been able to talk about the first few episodes of those series. But that's going to be it for this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity. And we hope you enjoyed our discussion. You can keep it going all month long by following us on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter as Sci-Fi Fidelity. And in March, we'll be discussing 11 based on the Stephen King time travel novel. And it looks like Legends of Tomorrow. But in the meantime, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you access it. We're on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Plus, we take suggestions for future topics, including our bonus topic there at the end. Just email us at sci-fi fidelity at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next month. <laughs>